church family, if you will, open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Our passage today we're going to be looking at is chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The title of our message is Grace Alone. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Grace Alone. I'm going to read this passage, and then we'll take a look at it with the help of the Holy Spirit. You follow along in your copy. This is the Word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Heavenly Father, would you open up our hearts and minds to receive the truth of your word today. Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, working your word into us, Lord, may we not leave this place the way we came, Lord. May we be changed by the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. This concise and yet profound doctrinal statement is the clear teaching of God's Word. And it was, I think we could say, rediscovered. Not invented, because it comes from the Bible, but it was rediscovered during the Protestant Reformation. In 1517, Martin Luther vented his frustrations with the teaching and practices of the Catholic Church, which was basically the church of that day. His complaint took the form, and you probably know this, of 95 theses, 95 complaints against the church. October 31st is often celebrated as the day when he posted these 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, it's debated whether or not it actually happened on October 31st. It's also debated whether or not Martin Luther actually posted them to the church door. Maybe he did. Maybe somebody else did. But what's not debated is that he wrote those 95 theses. What's not debated is that Luther, as well as others, were fed up with the teaching and practices of the Catholic Church in that day. And what were they teaching? What was the church teaching? Well, they were teaching that you had to add good works to Jesus in order to be saved. Not Jesus' good works, your good works. You had to add something that you would do in, to Jesus in order to be saved. They were teaching that the priests were the mediators. You had to go through the, that human priest to get to God, to confess your sins. They were teaching that you could and that you must pay money to purchase your way out of God's punishment. And this teaching was taught to people who didn't have the scriptures, didn't have the Bible in their everyday language. But that was fine in the eyes of the priests and the bishops because scripture, God's word, took a back seat, really, whether they would admit it or not, took a back seat to the teaching of the church, to the doctrines that the church had 
come up with and to the traditions of the church. But all anyone needed to do was compare this teaching that they were propagating to the word of God. And it was clear that what was being taught was nothing less than a false gospel. Not a little a little off here or there, but a false gospel. Luther didn't know it in 1517, I don't think, just like we don't know what our actions are going to do in the future, nor do I think he even perhaps even intended it for it to happen the way it did. But through his stand and others stand, we're not going to give him just him all the credit, though he was prominent in this through their stand against these false teachings. What became known as the Protestant Reformation was birth. Protestant Reformation was a break from the Catholic Church and its teachings, and, and in a very real way, we're the product of that here today. Now, I definitely don't agree uh, with all of Luther's beliefs and practices, nor those of some of the other well-known reformers. However, I do believe that we're indebted to them. We're indebted to them for starting a reformation of the Christ, Christian church, which really at its core drove believers back to the Bible said, let's get back to the word of God and make sure what we are believing is what God's word says, not just what other people are saying. Let's get into God's word for ourselves. It drove people back to the Bible specifically for the doctrine of salvation, which I think we'd all agree is a pretty important doctrine. The position of the Reformation, the teaching of the Reformers, um, it can be summarized with what are known as five solas. S-O-L-A-S, solas. All right, it's a Latin word, five solas. Solas, a Latin word for only or alone. Only or alone. What are these five solas? Well, you're going to see them on the screen. You don't have to write them down. Uh, you'll have a chance to jot them down in just a moment. Uh, we'll, we'll start with sola gratia, which is grace alone. And then sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. And solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And you're probably sitting there going, Amen. Wouldn't, wouldn't everybody who reads their Bible believe this? We should. But remember, they didn't have, many of the people didn't have the Bible in their everyday language. So they were not being taught this. And so the Reformer said, this is what the Bible teaches. Now, I think it's good. I think it's helpful. I think you should learn these, even memorize them. You don't have to memorize the Latin, but memorize the, the, the English um, version of it. And um, it, the way that I, that I like to remember it is in a sentence, okay? It's a sentence that I started out the sermon with, but you're going to see it in just a second. And, um, and this is, we're going to look at this for several weeks, this statement, and I would encourage you to learn it, um, maybe try to put it to memory. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. If somebody were to ask you, tell me in one sentence what salvation is, according to God's Word, you would say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. How do we know that? According to Scripture alone. What's the goal of it all? For the glory of God alone. These are not secondary or tertiary beliefs. These beliefs are at the core of Christianity. They're primary. They're essential. They're non-negotiable. Okay? We can't agree to disagree on this. It's, you have to believe these things. And not only are they those things, they're also beautiful. They're 
beautiful truths that God has communicated to us through his word. Over the next several weeks, I want us to examine each of these solas in more detail. We're going to take one a week and look at a passage in scripture which highlights that particular sola. My prayer is that by the end of this series of sermons, we're going to, one, be more confident in what God's word teaches about salvation. Another goal is that we're going to be more in love with the Lord for the great salvation that he's given us. And then another goal is that we would be more eager and better prepared to go and share this gospel of salvation with those who need to know. I want you to think well about these solas. We're going to use our thinking caps some, but I, I don't want this just to be merely an intellectual exercise for us. Yes, these, these are true truths, if I can say it that way. They are, they are true and they are primary, but they're also beautiful, amazing truths from God's Word. It shouldn't just influence our thinking, but should influence our hearts and how we think about life and then how we live. They offer hope to the hopeless, help to the helpless, life to the dead, as we'll see today, salvation to sinners. Today I want us to look at sola gratia, grace alone. Church family, salvation is by grace alone. I don't think I could say a more foundational statement when it comes to what the Bible teaches about salvation than to say it is by grace alone. If we miss this, we miss all of salvation. We talk about grace. We sing about it. We've already sung about it today. But I want to ask you a question. How often do we stop and think about grace deeply? How often do we live it out in our day-to-day lives? This truth that salvation is by grace, grace alone. I want to look at a hallmark passage from, this new, from the New Testament. It's the passage we just read, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's a hallmark passage when it comes to understanding what salvation is and how it comes to us. I believe this passage of Scripture ought to be read, reread, memorized. I mean, I, I'm serious. See if over the next several weeks you can, you can memorize Ephesians chapter 2, one, verses 1 through 10. We're going to look at other passages of Scripture. But this passage, if you want a passage that just in 10 easy to, I think, learn and memorize and yet super profound, you could spend years and years and years and years unpacking all the truths. You want a passage that just lays it out. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I want to look at this passage and I want to see how there is, there's no way that you could hold a biblical view of salvation and at the same time say that salvation is not by grace alone. There's no way. If you say that salvation, if, if there's something other than grace or something added to grace, it's not a biblical understanding of salvation. Let me summarize it this way. Salvation, this is what we see in this passage, salvation is a free gift of God based on His gracious choice to love and save, not our works to earn His love and salvation. The salvation is a free gift of God based on His gracious choice to love and to save, not on our works to earn His love or to earn salvation from Him. We see the word grace several times in this passage. What is grace? Don't you think about it. How would you define grace? Perhaps you've heard it defined this way. It's unmerited favor. 
unmerited, meaning you didn't do anything to merit it or earn it. And it's favor. It's a good thing. I like to say it this way. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. You probably heard me say that before. You'll hear me say that again. I, that's, the way I, that's the way I like to think about grace. It's, it's getting something good that you didn't deserve, that you don't deserve. The opposite of grace is getting something by your own effort. The opposite of grace is working to earn something. When you have a job and you work hard to earn that, that, uh, that money that, and it's given to you, that's not grace. That's the opposite of grace. You worked for it and you earned it. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's just not what grace is. Grace is getting something that you haven't earned, that you haven't deserved, that you don't deserve. Salvation from sin, gaining eternal life, entrance into the kingdom of God works only by grace alone. In other words, every person who experiences God's forgiveness, every person who possesses eternal life, every person who is saved has experienced that forgiveness, possesses that eternal life, has been saved, is saved, only because God chose out of his love to give you that eternal life, to give you his love, to give you that incredible gift of salvation. It's not because God looked at us and said, well, that person deserves it, so I'm going to have to give it to him. I'm going to have to give it to her. No, that is not grace. If you're saved today, you're not saved because of anything you have done. You're not saved because any decision that you have made. Ultimately, you're not saved ultimately because of any prayer you've prayed as if we could twist God's arm and he would go, oh, man, I guess I'll just save them because they prayed really well or read their Bible a lot. And so I'm going to have to. No, 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 no. It's all a free gift from the Lord. You're saved because God chose to love you. This is what I'm saying. These truths are so beautiful. God chose to love you, and he chose to provide everything that you and I needed for our salvation. And then he chose to give it to us without us deserving it, without us having to pay him for it or pay him back for it. It's absolutely incredible, and that's what grace is. I'm sure someone might be saying, well, don't we have to choose to follow Jesus? I mean, we have to do something, right? It doesn't just, we just wake up one day and we're saved. You're right. We, that's not how it happens. That's where the faith alone part comes in. And we'll talk about that more uh, later on. We do, have to, we do have to place our faith in Jesus. But as we'll see in this passage, even that faith is a gift from God. It's a gift of grace. At the core, the source, at the foundation, salvation is by grace, God's grace, and God's grace alone. Now, we're not going to examine every single detail of this passage today. There's so much here, and I would love to do that. But what I want to do today is use this passage to help us see the big picture of salvation and how it is only by grace alone. And anyone who would argue otherwise... They're not getting their doctrine of salvation from God's word. Um, as we kind of walk through this and look at this, I, I, I hope to share with you five ways that we see this passage ground salvation in grace. How this passage grounds salvation in grace. Now, if you look at verses 1 through 3, Paul gives us the bad news. Maybe you noticed that as we were reading through it a few minutes ago. Paul gives us the bad news. And let me tell you, it is bad. He describes the life of every person. Now, he is talking to Christians here. He's writing this letter, this letter to believers. And so this description that you'll see in verses 1 through 3 is in the past tense. It's who they were because they're not this anymore because of Christ, because of the grace of God that has come into their lives. This is who they used to be before they were saved. But, friend, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, trusting in Him alone, then these three verses describe you right now. 
So we need to take these seriously. These, this bad news describes you right now if you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation. What's the bad news? And you were dead, Paul says, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature objects of wrath like the rest of mankind. I don't know how you, you can't get any worse news than that. I mean, you think, take all the bad news you've ever received in your life and you put it all together. And it's nothing compared to that bad news right there of who we are by nature, objects of God's divine wrath. That's the bad news. It's who we are. And anytime you or I begin to think that we are good in and of ourselves, anytime we begin to think that, well, I'm better than someone else, anytime we might begin to think, even as Christians, that I'm more deserving of God's love than that person over there, well, we need to race back. <laughs> we need to race back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and be reminded of who we once were and who we would still be today if it were not for the grace of God through Jesus Christ in our lives. How does God's word describe us? Just look there. Like, make a list in your mind. Dead in sin, walking in sin, following the ways of the world, following Satan. That's the prince of the power of the air that you see there. Uh, sons of disobedience, living for selfish ambition rather than the glory of God. And by nature, children of wrath. But praise God, the text doesn't stop there. And what if Paul just, ended that? Paul just wrote that to him? So that's who we are. There's nothing, nothing that can be done about this. The text doesn't stop there. Verse 4, something happens which completely transforms dead, sinful objects of wrath into eternally living, saved, heaven-dwelling, riches of heaven-enjoying people of God. What happens? Well, we show up on the scene, right? We rush in and we, we save the day. No, we have nothing to do with it. Not... But you did such and such. What's verse 4 say? But God. That's why. That's why there's this transformation. That's why he can write, you once were this, but you're not anymore. Why? But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What happened? The loving, merciful, gracious God against whom we sinned. The loving, merciful, gracious God whose law we had transgressed. Remember, dead in your trespasses, in your sins. The loving, merciful, gracious God whose wrath we most definitely deserve. That God, the only God, has intervened into our completely hopeless and helpless state. And he has worked salvation. This is the gospel. That gospel means good news. This is the good news. Verses 1 through 3, the worst news in all the world. Verses 4 through 7, the greatest news in all of the world. I want you to notice a couple of things um, in, in these verses. First, I want you to notice the who that it's behind the transformation. Just remember that this is the holy God that demands perfection. Whose presence, Scripture says, is a consuming fire. 
The God who destroyed the earth in a flood because of the wickedness of people. The God who has promised to cast Satan into an eternal fire forever and ever and ever. It's that all-powerful God who we have offended. Not who we have pleased, who we have offended with our sin against Him. And it's that same God who intervenes on our behalf. Don't miss that. Why has he done that? Not because of anything good in you or me. There's nothing in this passage about the goodness of humanity. So then that leads us to this question. Why does he intervene on behalf of sinners? Because of who he is. Notice how God is described. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great Love with which he loved us. Who's the us? It's the verses one through three. Objects of his wrath. He's loving objects of his wrath. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He intervenes on our behalf because of who he is, not because of who we are. His intervention is one of grace. And that's the who that's behind the transformation. But I want you to notice the transformation itself. How does the text describe us after God has intervened? What what does it say? Alive together with Christ. Uses the word saved, raised up with him, raised up with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Future recipients of the display of his immeasurable grace and kindness toward us. Now compare that description to verses one through three. I mean, it's a complete 180. It's a total transformation. And what's the point that Paul is making here? He's he's making the point that. Only way you can explain this is grace. Only way you can explain this is that God has done something for us of his own doing that we absolutely don't deserve. The point is that we're saved by grace. It's the scriptural explanation for our salvation. And if you think about it, it's the only reasonable explanation for our salvation. If, if verses 1 through 3 is who we are, then the only way that we could be saved is God gives us this free gift of salvation. Now comparing verses 1 through 3 with verses 4 through 7 reveals several ways salvation is grounded in grace and grace alone. I told you I want to give you five ways, okay? And you're thinking, where are, these, when, when, when are we going to get these? All right, well, here you go. You ready? Uh, let, me, let me give you uh, a few of these in these verses right here. First, only grace can raise a sinner from death to life. How do we know that? How can we say that it's by grace and grace alone? That we don't have to add a little something to it? It's because only grace could bring a dead person back to life. I want you to think about that. Think about the description that God uses as His Word to describe us. This one description of salvation is enough to lead us to believe that salvation is 100% the work of God's grace. Before God saves us, we are dead in sin after god saves us we are alive in christ salvation doesn't make a bad person good salvation makes a dead person live now let me ask you a very important question here what can a dead person do to bring himself or herself back to life nothing nothing that person can't do anything at all, much less anything to bring himself or herself back to life. That dead person can't do that. So the biblical picture of salvation, and maybe you've heard this before, 
It's not a man drowning in the ocean of his sin, clinging to Jesus as the ring, as the life ring that's been thrown to him out of the boat of salvation. Okay? That's not the picture here of salvation. So what is the picture? We can use some of that same imagery. But the biblical picture of salvation is a dead man lying at the bottom of the ocean. The ocean of sin. Whom God resurrects to new life. And he does so by casting his son into the depths of our sin. So that he would give his life. So that we, the dead man at the bottom, could be lifted up in the gracious arms of God. And carried back to his side where we have everlasting life. That's the biblical picture of salvation. Not us doing a little swimming and hanging on to Jesus at the same time. Because the dead man can't swim. It's God doing all the work to rescue us. And if you think about it, if the deadness is a deadness caused by sin, and if it is the God who must punish sin with death, who gives them new life, then we must say that this new life that they, that we would receive, is completely from outside them. One, because we can't do anything as dead people in our sin, and completely undeserved because we're dead in sin the very thing that condemns us before a holy god it's unmerited it's undeserved so just from this one picture of salvation a sinner being raised from death to life we realize that salvation must be 100 percent god's work and we 100 percent don't deserve it and so only grace can raise a sinner from death to life let me give you another way that we see grace Uh, salvation grounded in grace in this passage it's this only grace can provide a follower of satan with a seat in heaven only grace could provide a follower of satan with a seat in heaven i just want you to we're just just bouncing back and forth from the verse the bad news in verses one through three the good news in verses four through seven verse two describes us as followers of the prince of the power of the air that's satan that means we are followers of Satan. I don't know if any of you ever uh, that are Christians have ever shared your testimony and said, well, before I came to faith in Christ, I was a Satan follower. You probably never said that in your, in your testimony, unless, unless you were what we think of as a, a Satan worshiper. But church family, I was a Satan follower before I came to faith in Christ, before God reached out and saved me. You, if you're saved today, were a Satan follower. It may not look like what we often think of in our minds as a Satan worshiper, But the text says that all of us were followers of the prince of the power of the air. We were Satan followers. Do you know where the final destination of Satan is? We read about it in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation says that God's preparing eternal lake of fire for Satan. And one day he's going to bind him up and he's going to cast him in there. What happens when you follow somebody? You go where they go. So if we're followers of Satan, where should we end up? In the eternal lake of fire with Satan. And Revelation says that's exactly what's going to happen to those who die in their sin. Who die physically without ever having been raised spiritually from their deadness in their sin. But notice how verse 6 describes the final destination of those who are saved. Those who are saved are seated with Jesus in heaven. That's the opposite. That's as opposite as death and life, which we just looked at. Salvation transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Salvation takes us from the fires of hell to the joys of heaven. Let me ask you what you've done 
to make that happen? What have I done to make that happen? Nothing. Nothing. We need somebody to save us from our enslavement to our sin, our enslavement to Satan, and we can't free ourselves. Only God can do that. Only God can free us from the clutches of Satan and give us a seat in heaven. Here's the crazy thing. That's exactly what God has done. That's exactly what God has done. He has given sinners a seat in heaven. It's not what we deserve. We deserve the opposite. But we can go from following Satan into hell to having a seat in heaven. And it's because God gives us this free gift of salvation, setting us free from that entrapment, from that enslavement to our sin. This is what Jesus has done. Say, how does God set us free from that? Well, it's because Jesus paid the redemption price. He's the one who goes into the ocean of sin on our behalf. He paid the price to set us free from the clutches of Satan and to provide us with a seat with him in heaven. Listen, the only person, the only person in the entire universe who deserves to have a seat in heaven is Jesus. He ought to be the only one seated in heaven. Because God is rich in mercy and great in love and shows grace to us, you and I can have a seat in heaven with Jesus. Only grace can do that. Only grace can do that. Let me give you a third way that we see salvation grounded in grace. It's this. Only grace can turn an object of God's wrath into a recipient of his kindness. Only grace can turn an object of God's wrath into a recipient of his kindness. Listen, if, if being dead in your sin and being a follower of Satan is not enough to convince you that we are completely hopeless and helpless apart from God's saving grace in our lives, this ought to seal the deal. Objects of God's wrath. But we get to go from that to being recipients of his kindness. We see this vast chasm across which God's grace brings us. Verse 3 says that by nature we are objects of God's wrath. That means it's not just that we do bad things outwardly. We're, we're sinners inwardly. Like that's just who we are. As we come into this world, we come in by nature sinners and therefore by nature objects of God's wrath. And therefore there's nothing that we can do to change that. We deserve to have the wrath of Almighty God poured out on us for all of eternity because that's the just punishment for sinning against an eternal God. The eternal punishment. And yet verse 7 says that those who are saved will experience, I love this, this phrase, will experience the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. For we're by nature objects of God's wrath. The only thing that we can do as objects of God's wrath is things that deserve his wrath. And so the only way we could ever experience the opposite of his wrath is if he transforms us, if he rescues us, if he saves us. And only God's grace can do that. Think about it this way. We bring nothing to the table except sin and spiritual deadness. God brings the riches of his mercy and his great love with which he has loved us. And we walk away completely forgiven, alive, new creation, citizens of heaven, enjoying forever the kindness of God. That 
is grace. Which is exactly what Paul says next as he drives home this point in verses 8 through 9. You probably, you probably know verse 8 through 9. Many of you probably memorized verses 8 through 9. But we don't want to divorce verses 8 through 9 from verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7 help us understand why Paul can reach the conclusion which he reaches in verses 8 through 9 when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not by works so that no one may boast. There it is, just plain and simple. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We've done nothing, brothers and sisters in Christ. We've done nothing to earn our salvation. We don't bring one good work to the table when it comes to purchasing our salvation. Our salvation is a gift. And that's the fourth way that we see salvation grounded in grace. Only grace could provide salvation as a gift. Really, the word grace and gift are almost synonymous. Because what is a gift? It's something that someone gives you and doesn't make you work for it. If they make you work for it, it's no longer a gift. It's a wage. But salvation is not a wage. It is a gift. And therefore, it is by grace. We've already seen our works are works of sinful death, works of Satan, works of deserving God's wrath. And so if we're going to be saved, the only way it can come is as a free gift, not by something that we must earn. If we have to earn it, listen, nobody would ever be saved. That's why Martin Luther was fed up with the practices of the Catholic Church, right? Because they're teaching, they still teach that you have to do something good in order to be saved, some good work. It had gotten so bad in Luther's day that people were literally paying money so that the good works of those who the church deems saints would be applied to their account and the accounts of their loved ones who had gone before them so that they would have enough good works in order to be saved. I mean, it was even an admission that I can't be good enough, so I'm going to have to bank on the goodness of some other person, except it wasn't the goodness of Jesus. And, I'm, and then they abuse it so much, so I'm going to have to pay money in order to have those good works credited to my account. It was a complete subversion of the gospel. But listen, it's not just the Catholic Church. Every single religion or cult or belief system other than biblical Christianity is ultimately dependent upon good works for salvation. In other words, to gain favor with God. Whether it's the Buddhist following the Eightfold Path, the Muslim making his pilgrimage to Mecca, whether it's the Catholic making sure she participates in all the sacraments, the Mormon going on his mission, or the Baptist giving tithes, reading the Bible, attending church services, and maybe even going on a mission trip or two, thinking that those things will make up for the bad things that he or she has done. Friend, at the end of the day, those are all false gospels that lead to where we're headed apart from Jesus, hell. Those are all attempts at earning what we can never earn, and that is salvation from our sins. Salvation is only by God's grace. It's not by human works. So today, if you're thinking, well, I'll get saved once I've cleaned up my life some. I mean, I've got to get some things straightened out in my life before I come to the Lord. Oh, no, 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 no. That's a workspace salvation. That's what, that's what Paul is writing to the Ephesians saying. That's not what salvation is because you will never be able to clean yourself up. You don't have to. God will do that. <laughs> God will do that by His grace, out of His great love for you. Maybe today you're thinking, well, I know I'm saved. Look at all the good things I've done. I know God's pleased with me. Uh, Yeah, I've done some bad things, but I've done way more good things. Friend, that's not salvation. You are not saved if that's what you're banking your salvation on. That is salvation by works. And there's no such thing. 
That is a rejection of God's salvation. Salvation comes only as a gift to be received, not as a wage to be earned. So how do we receive it? It's a gift, right? We have to receive it in some way. And that's where the faith part comes in. You've got to place your faith in Jesus Christ to save you. But I want you to notice that in this passage, we learn that even the faith that we place in Jesus is a gift from God. Even this is a part of God's gift of grace. Because remember, what can a dead man do? Nothing unless someone else breathes new life into him. For for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It, this, all of salvation, the grace, the faith, everything, it is a gift from God. So you must have faith. You must choose to place your faith in Jesus. But when you do, you must not boast in your faith. If today God is drawing your heart to place your faith in Jesus for salvation, then you make that choice to follow Jesus. Listen, that's the most important decision you can ever make, to place your faith in Jesus Christ. But then... Quickly give God the glory for giving you the faith that you need to believe in Him for salvation. So verses 1 through 3 is the bad news of life before God's gracious intervention. Verses 4 through 7 is the good news of how God graciously intervenes. Verses 8 and 9 kind of summarizes how this happens in our life by grace, through faith, not of our works, so that we can't boast. That means we give God all the glory. Remember, soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. We give God all the glory. We can't boast. And then we have verse 10. Verse 10 describes our lives on earth after we've been saved. After we're saved, we do live a life of good works. Listen, it's not that good works are irrelevant. Don't walk out of here thinking, well, it doesn't matter how I live. No, God cares deeply about how you live. And he knows that we don't live how we're supposed to, and so he needs to save us by his grace if he's going to save us. It's the only way we can be saved. But once we have been saved, then we do go and we live a life that's full of good works. And yet even that is evidence of God's grace. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So those who have been saved by grace, which is the only way to be saved, we now are to live lives which are characterized not by sinful living, not by the works of darkness that God saved us from, but by the works of light, by living in holiness for him. But notice how we are able to do that. It's because We are his workmanship. He did the work. We're his workmanship. God's doing the work. And so here we have the fifth way that we see salvation grounded in grace alone. Only grace can replace a life of sin with a life of good works. Only grace can do that. This is one of the reasons I said earlier, do we, we, one, think deeply about grace? And two, are we living it out on a day-to-day basis? Are we living it out? Listen, The good works that we do are a result of God's grace in our lives. Remember how we walk when we're left to our dead in sin, Satan-following objects of divine wrath selves. Verse 3 says that we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we were walking, we were living in sinful works. But now as Christians, verse 10 says, we are living, we are walking in the good works that God has prepared for us to do. What happened what, was the, what made that happen in our lives? God's grace. We're His workmanship. Because we're His workmanship, because we've been created in Christ Jesus, because God has done this work in us, we can now, we should now, we will now, as new creations in Christ, fill our lives with good works. Oh, but wait. It's not us really filling our lives with good works. It's God who is filling our lives with good works. 
You could say it this way. Our good works as Christians are a result of God's good work of salvation. Only grace can replace a life of sin with a life of good works. Church, from beginning to end, salvation is a work of God's grace. We're saved. We live saved lives each and every day by his immeasurable grace. And so where does that leave us? Well, hopefully it leaves us believing that salvation is a free gift of God based on his gracious choice to love and save, not on our earning his love, earning his salvation. Hopefully it leaves us believing that salvation is by grace alone, but perhaps it leaves you wondering this. Well, how in the world could God do that? How in the world could a holy God just say, here is free salvation to you poor, wretched sinners who deserve my wrath? How could he just turn out? I mean, isn't that a violation of his holiness for him to count us righteous when we know that we are not righteous and he, more than anyone else, knows that we are not righteous? How can God do that? Well, he does that through Jesus Christ. Maybe later, go back to this passage and count up how many times you see the phrase, in Christ Jesus. Go back to chapter 1 and count there how many times you see the phrase, in Christ Jesus. I'll go ahead and tell you, it's a lot. It's only in Christ that we experience God's saving grace. God came and endured the wrath of his father through his death on the cross. He died in our place, but he rose up from the grave so that everyone, everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ will receive this free gift of salvation. And that's according to God's word. And it results in God getting all the glory. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. So if you've never been saved, if you have never been saved, this passage should leave you crying out in faith to God to save you, not because you deserve it, but because he is rich in mercy and great in love and has sacrificed his son in your place. If you have been saved, this passage should leave us confessing any arrogance in us concerning our salvation that might have crept into our hearts. And this passage should leave us as Christians rejoicing, rejoicing in this great grace which has saved us. And it should also leave us going and sharing this great grace with those around us. I want to end with the words of a slave trader turned abolitionist who thought deeply about the depth of his sin, but he also thought deeply about the depth of God's love. In 1772, John Newton wrote these words. Slave trader turned abolitionist. Verse 1 through 3 turned into verses 4 through 7. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, verse 1 through 3, but now am found, verse 4 through 7. Was blind, verse 1 through 3, but now I see, only by grace. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this free gift of salvation. And right now, God, I pray that if there is anyone who has never received this free gift of salvation by placing their faith in you, I pray that they would do so right now pray that they would cry out to you in their hearts and say, God, save me, not because I deserve it, but because 
you love me so much, so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And I trust what Jesus did to save me. God, thank you for grace. Thank you. You get the glory for it. Help us to rejoice in it. In Jesus' name we pray.